In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is preferred before Me, for He was before Me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. You may be seated. All right. So we have walked through these verses, and I'm going to fly over for you again a reminder of some of the key things. Verse 1 1, that text teaches us that God, the Son, is the Word. And He is not the only person who is God, He's with God also. So we have the doctrine of multiple persons that are divine presented there. Verse 3 lays out for us that all things were made through the Word. And without Him, without the Word, nothing was made that was made. So we have the decree of God, the creative power, that the fiat creation that by His very speaking, He makes things. He governs them. He causes things by His thoughts. Verse 4, in Him was life and the life was the light of men. Here we have the idea of the image of God, special revelation, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, and the covenanted uniformity of the church in terms of its witness across history. We see all of these things laid out. Those are light. Those are light that project into the world. Now, the the reality of the light, God, is communicated in these things, but the only one that provides us with a formal, epistemological basis for knowing truth, knowledge, certainty, is the special revelation. Now we have in verse 5 that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now that word comprehend can be translated as overcome, but that would not be the typical way of understanding it. It's sort of this idea of grasping or surrounding. And so you could talk about the idea of when you cover a light, that would sort of overcome it. But What's being talked about here is the fact that the darkness didn't get it. Man is the darkness in unbelief, falsehood, meaningless, irrationality. And there is an evil that is rooted in unbelief. The root of evil is not believing the truth. Sin starts with thinking falsehood. That is root sin. All sin comes from ignorance or error. You believe false things and therefore you act falsely. And so, that darkness 
in man is something that doesn't comprehend the light. There is this suppression of the truth that occurs. The external suppressing and the internal suppressing. The the waving away and the seeking to punish those who speak the truth. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, we know John the Baptist gets persecuted. This is not the Apostle John, not the author of the book. But he was sent by God to bear witness of God, to bear witness of the light. So he's a carrier of verbal revelation, of propositional special revelation. Words from the mind of God, infallibly given. And some people are caused by the work of the Holy Spirit to believe. They're illuminated. But John is coming and he's bearing witness with the external word. Verse 9, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, there's a way in which there's a light given to everybody. And that is the image of God. That is rationality and the innate categories. So Christ is the true light, God the Son. There is a giving of special revelation by John, and that speaking of the words about Christ meets minds. Right? John speaks, and the people that are listening to him they are rational creatures. And as rational creatures, they are able to understand the words. And many people, the Pharisees, frequently understand exactly what Jesus and his apostles and John the Baptist are saying, which is why they are so offended. And a lot of times, one of the best ways to know if somebody's understanding you or not, if you're trying to tell them the gospel or tell them the law of God, is were they offended? You're a little bit worried sometimes. People just calmly take it in. You go, do you get what I'm saying? Like, why aren't you mad? Should I be converted or be mad? I should see some sort of a pen in your hand asking to sign the covenant and join up or a rock in your hand to throw at my face. I don't see either. You are sitting there with equanimity. So Jesus, Paul, John the Baptist, they didn't have that problem of people calmly listening to them and moving on followed by a yawn. So the light of nature is the image of God. The image of God is general revelation. General revelation is not empirical study. General revelation is the laws of logic and innate propositions. And the word that's externally preached hits that. And there's a responsibility that comes that increases with the hearing of that special revelation about God. And if it is not believed, it's because the Holy Spirit did not illuminate. And God holds us responsible for not believing. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. This is a recap. How is he in the world? He's in the world as Logos senses 1 through 7. Right? Go back to page 1. There's the list. God the Son, the decree of God, the image of God, verbal revelation, illumination, incarnation, the corporate maturing of the church. How was he in the world? In all of those ways. All of those ways. That's how he was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. God intentionally did not illuminate the world salvifically and brought about a decline in human history from Adam to Noah. There's sort of this reset point. And then there's a decline from Noah to Abraham, and there's sort of this reset point. And there's a decline from Abraham to Moses, and there's sort of this reset point. And then there's a decline from Moses to David, and there's sort of this reset point. And there's a decline from David to Christ, and there's a reset point. And this time, it just goes up. The decline over and over again was to point to the need for the theanthropic mediator, the God-man. The need for him and his reign, the greater son of David, 
And in his reign, now there is an upward trajectory, not just a decline, but there are temporary downs, and we're in one. And so we sometimes start to think, well, maybe, maybe this down is just like a long-term down. Maybe we're generally on the way down. Maybe this thing's a slide and not a ladder. But it's not. There's a short-term decline. The knowledge of God is filling the earth. And what we need to do is be consistent and return to the covenanted uniformity that has been attained to and advance from there. Verse 11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to the old covenant church and the church rejected him. The national church, the church of Israel, the church under age, rejected him. And the rejection by the church, by Israel, results in the rejection of Israel by Christ, which results in the acceptance of the Gentiles, the nations, which results in the later acceptance of Christ by Israel, because the Israelites are going to be jealous. And in being jealous, they are going to turn, which will result in a worldwide life from the dead, a resurrection, a regeneration of the world. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Remember, receiving is believing. Believing and receiving are the same thing. You receive by believing, and in believing you receive. What are you receiving? You're receiving Christ. When you believe the words that are revealed, you are believing Christ himself. We have the mind of Christ in the scriptures. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You are justified by faith alone, and adoption occurs in that. And so in adoption, we also have a legal right, and then we have the possession, more and more of the inheritance that we have a right unto. And that occurs by growing in the knowledge of God. You possess God more and more, and that gives power. And we're going to look at that. We're going to see when it talks about grace and truth, this relates to that inheritance. It relates to what has been given to us. Now look at point 21. We talk about the idea of being received into the number of the children of God. That's, that's the legal thing. We have our name put upon him. So he is claiming us. We have the spirit of God given to us to indwell us and to empower us. We have fatherly care of God the Father. And he gives dispensations. He gives things to us. He administers blessing to it. To us. He gives us liberties as sons in his house. And he gives us privileges as sons. And he makes us heirs of all of the promises, which means that we're heirs of the whole world. He makes us fellow heirs with Christ, so that in having Christ as our brother, right? That's an interesting thing. The Scottish, in their Scots Confession, the first Scottish Reformation, they refer to Christ in a way that you don't see in any other Reformed creed. It talks about him as our brother. And that's true. We have a communion with Christ as sons. Not, not as sons by nature, but as sons by adoption. And so we are brothers with Christ. Fellow heirs. Now this reception, this belief of Christ, is by being born again by the will of God. The birth is not by blood. Look at point 22. It's not by material or genetic power. It's not by being a blue blood. It's not by lineage or ancestry or bloodline. It is not of the will of the flesh, which means it's not by the powers inherent in man's nature generally. It's not man's physicality, certainly, and it's certainly not man's sinful nature. But what the text means is the nature of man generally. And that's the way in which the word became flesh. Those are being used in the same way next to each other. It's not of the will of man. The power to choose, to believe, is not original in man. It is not the mind of man that has the power of itself. It's not the the will of man, which is simply the mind of man choosing. None of these places is the place where the power resides. It comes from God. God sovereignly, by His power, by His working alone, resurrects our dead souls. And so that resurrecting of our souls, that's the first illuminating act. So last time I printed out for you like three pages from the larger catechism. 
about justification and effectual calling and the nature of saving faith. And those are certainly worth reading. Verse 14, page 5. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All right. So He became flesh. I already defined flesh for you, but I'm going to do it again. That flesh is not just the material side of human existence, but it is the human person as a creaturely existence as distinct from God. Okay, I basically just paraphrased it. took a shortened version of what you see there from Herman Ridovoss. Now, in becoming flesh, in becoming human, we need to remember what was accomplished at Chalcedon. Let's not redo this. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's not abandon the work that has already been done. The church has thought about this a lot already. There was a lot of ink spilled and some blood spilled about this. And so, let's remember what Chalcedon figured out. Christ, who is the eternal God, became man by taking to Himself a human nature. He did not change into man. He did not cease to be God and become man. This is popular because it feels pious and it's, it feels good to be like God laid aside His divine attributes and emptied Himself. And this is called the kenosis theory. Sounds like it's from Star Wars? It's not. It's from a Greek word. The kenosis theory is this idea of the putting aside, the emptying out of Himself, the attributes of divinity. That does not happen, and it's blasphemous. He remains God. And in remaining God, He adds to Himself a human nature. So, this is without conversion. This is without changing. He doesn't change from God to man. He remains God and adds humanity. It's without composition. Here is a common. I would say, if I talk to somebody who grew up in a Protestant church that was relatively conservative, where they were taught that the Bible is the Word of God, this is basically what I expect them to think. Okay? I expect them to think, what happened is, you have the mind of God, and there's a body that gets made, and maybe you add some emotions to it, and you just have the mind of God plugging in, and it's sort of like this anime cartoon where his eyes are really bright, and so you just have like God walking around in a human body, and there's no emotion, and he just, but he has emotions because he you know, has compassion, right? So you've got to have emotions. He's really emotional except when you're thinking about the idea of God in the body. So there's this confused mess of a view where you just have the mind of God plugged into a meat suit. That is not the doctrine of the Incarnation. It is not the doctrine of the Incarnation. You have a human mind that's created. You have a human mind that's created. And so you have the divine mind which does not change, does not end, and you have a human mind that is created, a reasonable soul, and a human body. This doctrine, this false doctrine, is called Apollinarianism. It's the composition view, right? It's, it's the Voltron Jesus, or it's the Power Ranger Jesus. If you just put them together, and you make this robot thing, right, with the different parts, you slap them together, then what you've got is the Incarnation. That is not the doctrine of the Incarnation. The doctrine of the Incarnation has a whole divinity and a whole humanity. It is not a joining together of parts of both. It is the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity. So it is without composition. So, Jesus doesn't change from God to man. He remains God and adds a humanity. He doesn't have parts of each. He has the fullness of each. And it's without confusion, right? There's not a, you know, there's not like a, a cup of divinity and a cup of humanity that get poured together and then it fizzes, right? No, that's not what happens. It's not a mixing of the humanity and the divinity. It is not a Hercules where you have this demigod. What you have is truly God in the fullness of divinity, truly man in the fullness of humanity, and those are distinct natures that are united. And so it's not a confusion. It's not a mixture. It's not a fusing together. It's not a blending. So conversion is about change. 
Composition is about slapping together. Confusion is about mixing. None of those happen. We have a true, full divinity and a true, full humanity united together, and that's called the personal union, the hypostatic union. And that union has everything necessary for a divine person and everything necessary for a human person, and we call them one legal person. And that one legal person makes it so that the actions of the human are the actions of the divine. And that makes it so that when Jesus dies for us, we can say, along with Acts chapter 20, that the blood of God paid for us. God doesn't have blood. He's a spirit. But in taking on a human nature, we have the blood of God. And the blood of God paid for our sins, which makes it of infinite value. And so it is sufficient to pay for all of the sins of all of the elect. Now, this union is without end. It has a beginning. It has a beginning because human nature doesn't come into existence until a very particular point in time. But it has no end. It's everlasting. It's without end. So, the Word became flesh without converting into man, without having a composition of God and man of partial unions, and without a confusion of mixing of the natures into a Hercules. And this doesn't end. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, when you read the Old Testament over and over again, you see this idea of the tabernacle, the presence of God in the tabernacle. That there's this tent where the glory of God dwelt. And it's replaced with a temple. But Christ is said to tabernacle, to dwell amongst us. The, the, the word here has to do with the idea of he, he puts up a tent. And in the putting up of the tent, he dwells there. And so this dwelling in our midst is then replaced with a temple. What's the temple of Christ? The church. So just as the tabernacle is replaced with a temple, the dwelling of Christ in our presence in a physical form is replaced with him dwelling in our presence in a physical form known as the church. Because we are his body. And so there's a maturing from him coming and then we have him ascended as the head sitting at the right hand of the Father and there's the church. And so what we have in the book of John is the story of the tabernacling. Okay, so what I'm going to give to you next time is an outline that relates the story of John to the tabernacle and an order, a sequence, where there's this kind of walking through. And so when you look at the book of Exodus in terms of how it lays out what happens with the tabernacle and its construction, and you look at the order of entering in and the priestly service there, we're going to see a relationship to the tabernacle and what Christ does. So this is providing for us this idea that this is the story of Christ's tabernacling among us. He comes in the flesh and tabernacles among us. And we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. Christ's glory is the glory of God. Christ's glory is the glory of God. And you might, you know, we, we talk about the glory of God a lot. And if that's the case, and it's probably something worth having a very, very clear definition of. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is God's definition. Right? I mean, we all, that's your immediate response, right? You're like, you know, if I want to see the glory of God, I'm going to open a dictionary. That's what the Shorter Catechism largely is. It's a theological dictionary. What is blah? What is blah? What is blah? You see it over and over again. What is justification? What is faith? What is God? It gives to us a bunch of definitions. And the definition of God is a listing out of his attributes. What is God? And the answer to that is his definition. And his definition is his glory. As you pick up the attributes of God, as you see him for what he is, you are seeing his glory. If you don't understand God, 
you are not seeing his glory because he's not a physical object that you see with the physical eyes. The only way that you see God is by understanding his attributes. And in understanding his attributes, you see him as he is. You see him with the eye of the mind. Not with an imagining. With an understanding. So we beheld his glory. There's this, there's this seeing of the objective light, the revelation. The, the, and then there's, do you get it? Do you believe it? So this glory is explained. There's an explanatory clause here. When we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, the only begotten of the Father. The point there is to say he is God and he is a particular person of the Godhead. He is the Son and he has a distinctive role. So let's think about that. How, what is the difference between the begottenness of the Son and the unbegottenness of the Father? Okay. Does this mean that God the Father begot Jesus in the same way that a human father begets a son? This is the Mormon doctrine. This is the Mormon doctrine. No, it is not that doctrine. It is not that Jesus has a beginning by some sort of celestial, spiritual sex. That is not the idea. What is being taught is that there is some way in which Jesus is a son of the Father and he is like unto the Father in his essence. It's a begottenness of sonship as opposed to an adoptedness of sonship. One of the errors of the incarnation that we want to avoid is we don't want to take on the view that Jesus became the Son of God by adoption. He was eternally the Son. He's eternally the Son. He doesn't become the Son at a particular point in time. He's eternally the Son. So adoptionism is one of the errors that was fought against in the early church. Now, he is the, he is the glory of being the only begotten of the Father. So when we talk about the Son being begotten, here's what that's a reference to. It's a reference to him accepting as an equal to the Father in his nature. Right? He, is, he is equally God. He accepts in a covenant, a position of lower authority. He accepts a position of lower authority. That position is the position of being God the Son. So that covenantal distinction, we have God the Father, who by covenant is the Father. We have God the Son, who by covenant is the Son. We have God the Holy Spirit, who by covenant is God the Holy Spirit. They are three persons in their essence, unavoidably, but their roles, their roles are by covenant, by agreement. And so the Father can give an order to the Son, and the Son has to obey it because he's covenanted to do it. And the Holy Spirit can be given orders by the Father and by the Son, and He obeys because He's covenanted to that role. And that helps us to understand properly the doctrine of marriage. Women are not of essence less human than men. They are obligated to obey their husbands by covenant. And that's the design. That's the covenant that God has given. You can't make a different version of it. You can't have the matriarchal version of marriage. Marriage is inherently patriarchal. The feminists have it right. It is inherently patriarchal. What they're wrong about is that that's bad. How do we know it's not bad? Because the law of God is the only way we can distinguish good from evil. I asked the feminist, great, you think that's bad. Why do you think it's bad? Because it oppresses women. Why is that bad? Because who wants to be oppressed? Who cares what you want? Why is what you want the definition of good and evil? Are you God? It is, it is not sufficient. Human desire is insufficient to distinguish good from evil unless humans are God. And that's the basic problem back in Genesis, right, is Eve wanted to be as God. She wanted to determine good and evil, to be the definer of it. So, the distinction of roles by covenant. Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father. Now, there's a further explanation here. He's full of grace and truth. 
full of grace. We can think about grace in terms of the, the most direct meaning of it. The word grace in its most direct meaning has to do with an attribute. Sorry, an attitude. Forgive me. Wrong word. The race attribute. Backwards. Attitude. It's an attitude in the mind of God. And as an attitude, it is what God thinks about someone. It's a desire for their good. It's a love toward them. It's a demerited love towards them. It is his desire for the good of the object. That's what grace is. And so when we talk about Jesus being full of grace and truth, that we might be inclined to initially think, oh yeah, God is gracious. That's true. Absolutely true. But when we read the context, it's going to talk about the distinction between Moses and Jesus. And it's going to say that when Jesus comes, what Jesus brings is full of grace and truth. And so, the issue is not the attitude of God. The issue is, we're talking about things that are downstream of grace. And so, you will often see gifting called grace. You will often see gifts called grace. And so, what's being talked about here is that Jesus Christ is full of gifting and power. He's full of it. He's full of gifting and power. There is a fullness of giftedness and power. And he also is the fullness of truth. He's all power and gifting. And he's all truth. So now let's, let's keep going down. Let's see how, how does this get applied. Now, I want you to look at uh, the quote from Rushduni. Um, One of the things that gets talked about, uh, look, look at the last paragraph there on page 6. So Calvin in his commentary discusses the idea of the logos as speech, as the word. That's the, translated, that's the translation of logos here, right? We have, in the beginning, was the word. So we get to this idea of speech. And speech, why do you speak? Your goal is to communicate and to create communion, to create community. You want to, you want to take an idea in your mind and give it to somebody else. And you're hoping to share in that understanding. And then you're hoping to work together. And that's sort of the, the goal of speech. Well, God the Son is the Logos. He's the Word. He's speech. And apart from Him, men move into ultimate speechlessness and meaninglessness. In Christ, we find our voice. He is the life-giving Word. The Logos who enables us in Him to become the expression of God's creating purpose. Okay, so that's the quote from the very end there of Rush Juni's commentary on John. So there's this work where Christ communicates gifting and he communicates truth to us, which allows us to have meaning and to work together. Without that, we can't. And so Rush Juni talks about how in hell, there is no cooperation. Hell is not a place of shared understanding, right? You, you'll have some people who kind of joke about, you know, all the interesting people are going to be in hell. Yeah, okay, fine. And they'll be trying to murder you, right? Like this, this constant, like, you have like Hume's world. It's like life is short and savage and whatever. It's like, yeah, it's that way, but it doesn't end. You just have pain over and over again. And so this existence together without shared truth, without shared purpose, without this desire for each other's good, hell is this awful place of alienation. And what we see in the Word of God, the Word of God removes alienation and increases unity. And in increasing unity, through spreading the knowledge of the truth, it makes it so we can work together. And then also there's a giving of power to people who are given the truth, and that giving of power makes it so we can do more together. So there's effectiveness. So, verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. For, for he was before me. Okay, here's an argument. John's presenting an argument. The guy coming after me is of a higher rank because he was before me. That doesn't typically work, right? You don't just go, I was here first, so I have a higher rank. So when he walks into a building, I was here first, you have to obey me. It's the way it works. These are the rules. Listen to John the Baptist. This is not how it works. What is the point here? The only reason this argument makes any sense at all is because he's talking about the eternality of Jesus Christ. He was before me in the sense that he's the eternal one. He's God. 
This is an argument from the nature of things. This is an argument from the essence of divinity. That because Christ is the eternal one, therefore, even though John in his human nature is older than Jesus in his human nature, John is subservient to Jesus because he is the eternal one. Verse 16. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Okay. I am restraining myself here. I just want you to remember that. I want you to appreciate my restraint right now. You don't know why, but what I'm giving you is a lot, and I'm restraining myself. So his fullness. I want you to look at point 29. These are a bunch of verses where you have that word. These are the verses where you have that word. Except for Colossians 2, verses 1 to 3. I want to walk through these right now. I want you to get this idea of fullness. Romans 11.12 Now, if their fall, the Jews, is riches for the world, and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Same word. So there's something that's going to happen where the Jews have fullness. That fullness, the context that's being talked about, is when the Jews come to believe. Okay? It's when the Jews come to believe. So it's the nation of the Jews are falling away, Israel is falling away, and Israel's going to come back, and they're going to have fullness. And so when they have fullness, there's going to be a greater blessing on the Gentiles. Romans 11.25 For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, the idea of the Gentiles is a sort of harvest and there's a fullness of the Gentiles to come in. So we have this idea of fullness, the filling, the, there's a fullness. Romans 13.10 Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That word fulfillment is actually fullness. Love is the fullness of the law. So, when you understand the law in its fullness, what you have is love. 1 Corinthians 10.26 The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. All the stuff filling it. Same word. Ephesians 1.23 Which is His body. This is the church. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of Christ. The church is the fullness of Christ. And he fills the church. What does he fill it with? Grace and truth. What does he fill it with? He fills the church with grace and truth. He fills us with gifting, power, and he fills us with truth. And the maturing of the church is the increase of knowledge of the church and the increase of giftedness, power. Verses 3.19 to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As we come to understand the gospel more, as we come to understand the love of Christ more, we become more and more filled with the fullness of God. Right? There is the law and there is the gospel. There is the knowledge of God that's revealed. As we study it, as we are filled with the knowledge of Christ, we are more and more filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians 4.13 Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, this The context here, Ephesians 4, is about God gifts the church, He gifts officers who are used to edify the body, who are used to minister to each other so they nurture each other with the gifting that they have until there's this maturing of the church and this unity of the church, the covenant of uniformity you might say, and in that, you have this perfect or mature man that reaches the full stature. He's 6'9". And in that fullness of the mature stature of the fullness of Christ, there is that manifestation of this mature man, the fullness of Christ. Now, you can see here, there's a lot of uses of this idea of fullness. John is importing all of it. Right? What John is doing is he is He's helping us to think about this idea of fullness and we're, we're dealing with the fullness in terms of Christ as a tabernacle and how He fills Himself. Right? He is the fountain from which all this fullness flows. 
and he gives it, he pours it into the church. And he does that. We are, our hearts, we have the word in us, and it is a fountain, it is a spring. There is this flowing water, this living water that makes us so that we have eternal life. And so this work to have the fullness, he fills us. And you talk about officers, and for example, in, in Acts chapter 6, it talks about the, the men who are qualified for the office of deacon, that they're full of the Spirit. And it talks about them being filled with power. This is the same thing. The idea of they're filled with truth from the Holy Spirit and the power from the Holy Spirit. Colossians deals with this theme as well. Colossians 1.19 For it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. It pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. Colossians 2.9 For in Him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see how this is Paul teaching this Johannine doctrine? There is a unity of the teaching. Now, this fullness, how does this get explained? Colossians 2, verses 1 to 3, helps us to see this fullness well. It, it says, For I want you to know that a, what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Okay, so encouragement comes from whatever he's talking about. Unity, being knit together in love, comes from whatever he's talking about. What is he talking about? And attaining to all riches. Money, money does this. And attaining to all riches of the fullness, of the full assurance of understanding. Oh, riches of understanding. This is a metaphor. We're talking about doctrine. To the knowledge of the mystery of God, the stuff that's hidden that's now been revealed, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are the fullness. It's the truth. The fullness of truth. And so in having these things, Christ shows Himself to be God and He gives it to the church. He gives it to the church. So let's think about... So let's think about that verse. And of His fullness we have all received. That word fullness, hopefully, even while holding back, you're welcome. Even while holding back, you hopefully have a much more full view of fullness, pun intended. And in having that more full view of fullness, you now think about what was received, the fullness that was received. Of His fullness, we have all received. Who is the all? Are we talking about the elect? Are we talking about the church? Are we talking about the world? What's being talked about here is the church. Now, in a certain sense, what happens is the world, the whole world receives this. Because Christ comes into the world and is a witness to the whole world. And having that witness to the whole world, everybody receives it in some external objective sense. But the church receives the oracles and ordinances to do the ministry. Now, the elect are the only ones that will receive the benefit. But even Judas that reprobate son of perdition. He received the truth and spoke it. And he received power. And he cast out demons. He was used as an instrument, as a part of the church, as an apostle, a real apostle. And it increased his responsibility. So what's being talked about is the way in which the truth and the grace, not in terms of the attitude but in terms of the gifting, or received by the whole church. And it says, and we, sorry, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. That next part, grace for grace, this has a lot written about it. Okay, there are four major views. I'm only going to give you one. It's the right view, so you're welcome. D.A. Carson expresses it well. Here's a quote from his commentary. 
He says, the most convincing view takes anti. The word for is, is the Greek word anti. The most convincing view takes anti in one of its most common uses, and by far the most common in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. To mean instead of. From Christ's fullness, we have all received grace instead of grace. Okay, so, so think about this for a second. When it says in verse 16, and of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace, it's sort of saying, we have all received grace to replace the grace. What grace? What's being talked about? Well, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The point is, here's the line of argument. We've received the fullness of Christ, and we've received grace to replace grace, because the old grace of the law from Moses was inferior to the fullness of grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. That's the line of argument. So, Here's how some people interpret this. They'll go, well, Moses is of the law, and there's no grace and truth there. No truth. Whoa. Hold your horses. Calm down. It's the word of God. It's either true or it's not. And, and Jesus asserts the truth of Moses. Right? He says that Moses was sent by God. He talks about the Old Testament as being the word of God. He says he fulfills it. He doesn't come to end it, to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So... That's not being said, and the idea that there's no grace there is absurd also, because there are sacrifices for sin. Let me tell you what, the covenant of works has no place for sacrifice for sin. You know where the covenant of works has? It has place for punishing sin. That's it. Game over. Done. There are no sacrifices for angels, people. The sacrifices are for those who are receiving mercy. The idea of a payment for sin points to a substitute, life for life. And so the Mosaic Covenant is a type and shadow pointing forward to what Christ would do, and the fulfillment, the reality, is in Christ. And so it's not as though the Mosaic Covenant were devoid of grace and truth. The idea is that the grace and truth that are fully there in the New Covenant are so far better that it is the difference between a shadow and the reality. That's the idea. That's how Paul explains it. You read the book of Hebrews. We just we read a great chapter providentially today in Hebrews for this. Chapter 8 lays out the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Better promises. Better ministry. So that's what's being talked about. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. So, receiving grace for grace. We receive the new covenant, the new administration of the covenant of grace, the better administration of the covenant of grace to replace the inferior administration of the covenant, the old covenant. That is the idea. And there's an explanation of the superiority. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see I want you to see what Calvin says about this. Okay, jump with me to page nine and, and you're gonna see what Calvin's point is here. Okay, so Calvin in talking about this says, and I'm gonna read the underlined parts of Calvin's commentary here, okay? To my mind, the word truth denotes a firm and fixed state of things. Okay, so, so let me pause on that. We've received truth in Christ. What does that mean? It means we've received the fullness of truth. We have the complete revelation. There's no more addition. There's no change now to the revelation. There's not addition being added. We have the fullness of the revealed truth. We have the fullness of the counsel of God given to us in the new administration of the covenant. Continuing with Calvin. But by the word grace, I understand the spiritual fulfillment of those things of which the bare letter was contained in the law. Okay, so you, you see this. Second Corinthians, Paul does the same thing. He talks about the letter versus the spirit. Okay, and the letter is just the bare outline. It is just the form. And the spirit is the Holy Spirit empowering to understand and believe and to do and to benefit from. And the point is, not that nobody was saved in the Old Covenant, but that far fewer were. 
And the point is not that those who were saved in the Old Covenant received no gifts, but far less gifts. More people are saved, and they receive more gifts, and they get more full sanctification, and they have more effective ministry. These are the better promises. This is the better condition we have. The grace that we've received in place of the old grace. This is the superior condition of the church. Calvin continuing, In the law there was merely the outlined image of spiritual blessings which are actually found in Christ. If you separate the law from Christ, nothing remains in it except empty shapes. In the law is the shadow, but the reality is in Christ. It must not be supposed that anything false was shown in the law, for Christ is the soul who gives life to what would otherwise have been dead in the law. Now, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Christ is the maximal point of revelation. Now, we have a little bit of a problem with that because we go, but why did he send the apostles then? Why did he give more scripture after he died then? Well, remember what we looked at previously in John? We had all these quotes about the Holy Spirit bringing remembrance to the apostles of all the things that Jesus taught. Are you familiar with the fact that Jesus went to Paul as the last apostle and then he taught him for 14 years in Arabia? told that in Galatians. Okay, so what are they doing? What are the apostles doing? All they're doing is teaching the fullness of truth that was delivered to them by Christ. And so we're told in the book of Hebrews, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in the last days spoken to us by His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And it's really ages is a better translation. So like the old covenant, new covenant, the ages. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Okay, so this beginning of Hebrews is setting up the way in which Revelation culminates in Christ. Revelation culminates in Christ. And he gives us the fullness of truth. And so we behold his glory. Beholding the glory of God. The glory of the Father. And we can't see the Father, but Christ came in a visible form to give to us the fullness of the counsel of God. And we should have confidence that He understands the glory of God because He is in the bosom of the Father. He knows the heart. He knows the mind of God the Father. No one knows the heart of a man except for his own spirit. But the Holy Spirit and God the Son and God the Father search all hearts, including each other's. They know everything. And so in their mutual indwelling, in their mutual knowledge of each other, in their sharing in all truth together, we can have confidence that what Christ reveals is what the Father thinks. He is the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, and He is equal to the Father in essence and glory, but not in covenant station. The Son has declared the Father, which allows people who cannot and have not seen the Father to see, air quotes, the Father. He gives the apostolic deposit of the Scriptures, and He matures the church by His Holy Spirit, and causes the church to take possession of the knowledge that was given to the apostles 
as we increasingly take possession of the inheritance. And that gets manifested more and more in the maturity of the church, and it's captured in covenant uniformity. And as we have unity, we become a powerful witness to the world together. And so it is the central thing to have unity in the truth, to come to agreement about how to operate, and to then commit to that, and to functionally work together. And that manifests the reign of Christ, whose glory is as the glory of the Father. Comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Nye. Okay, so um, when, for example, um, Adam falls and you have Noah as sort of another Adam, right? The reset is not the removal of all sin, but there's a removal of the wickedness of the world. So there's this, the world is filled with evil, filled with violence, filled with blood, all this stuff, and God wipes it out. He baptizes the world in a flood. And in doing that, he washes away all this filth of the flesh, Right? And what's left is Noah and his household, but he does not remove from them all sin, and he doesn't give them like a new starting point like the score is started over. It's not like, okay, now, if you're just righteous enough, but the point is, there's this removal of the evil and going, hey, and the point is to show the plan. And he goes, okay, fine, now you have the magistrate, right? You didn't have the magistrate before, now maybe the sword will do it, haha. Right? And he knows, but he's doing it as a show. Right? The point is not to actually provide a test in the sense of maybe they'll fulfill it. It's a test in the sense that God knows we're not going to fulfill it. And he's showing in ages this story that shows what he wants to reveal about himself. And then we get to Abraham and what's happened from Noah to Abraham is this declining. And so the resetting that occurs is not that all sin is removed or there's any possibility of salvation by works, but the resetting is everything's falling apart. I'm going to add energy power and I'm going to add truth here and have a witness place in the darkness and preserve it to prevent the destruction of the church and the earth and so that's what I mean by reset points is not that there's a resetting of all guilt not that there's a removal of all sin from the earth but simply that there is this resetting up to preserve and there's a continuous decline and then the resetting to preserve the church until Christ and then there's an advance that's what I mean does that differentiate sufficiently? I think so. So you would be saying that there's a, a building upon in terms of gospel truth. I see. A further clarification as opposed to resetting and, and instituting of a new rubric. Yeah, so dispensationalism says every covenant that comes wipes out and ends the previous covenant. Yeah. They believe, unlike the book of Galatians, that new covenants nullify old covenants. Yeah. And Paul explicitly disowns that blasphemous assertion. And so... Yes, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a reset point of the board, not a reset point of the rule set. What happens each time is God says, cool, we have the book of instructions. Here's some extra pages I'm adding on. And we keep the old instructions and we're adding new instructions to it. And we get to Christ and we have the fulfillment and simplification of the instruction set, right? But it's all the meaning is retained. So yeah, I don't mean that we assume discontinuity. We have all the old revelation. We assume continuity into the future unless we're told that's no longer to be done. Yes. Thank you. For the record, yeah. I didn't think you meant that. I just thought it would be good for clarification. Thank you. Okay. And then the second thing, if we're ever having a conversation with someone who's of a feminist persuasion and they argue that marriage is bad because it's patriarchal, patriarchal and, and uh, that's oppressive, we would immediately refute their claim that a patriarchal well, I like sometimes to not immediately deal with the things that are obvious and that they want us to say. Sometimes I like to go to saying, why does that matter? Great. So, yeah, 
that person did these awful things. Genghis Khan killed millions of people. Why does that matter? Who cares? Who cares if he was a murderer? Who cares if Jeffrey Dahmer was a murderer? I think everybody knows that I'm not actually approving murder, but I'm making the rhetorical point. And if they think I'm approving murder, they'll probably stick around long enough out of outrage for me to get the chance to clear it up. Maybe not. But I think sometimes it's valuable just to go, but who cares? Why does that matter? So I think you have to judge. But I think it's useful sometimes. Could you humor me in, just real quick in explaining like, where you're going with like, asking why does that matter? Like, what, where do you want to go? Yeah, the point is that they don't understand what's good. And they have no coherent definition of what is good. And by what standard, right, is the other way of putting it. So why do you think it matters that people shouldn't murder each other? Why shouldn't they murder? Where did you get the ought, the shouldn't, here? Um, you know, so, so what is that from? And so I think getting them to see that they have no basis for morality and their moral objections are just pretense. But they don't actually have a morality. And so helping them to see that their lives are meaningless and they have no basis for judgment is what I'm trying to get to. That makes sense. And that's what you said initially in the teaching. So thank you very much for explaining that. Thank you. Anything else? Any other objections? Mr. Silva. Yeah. How would you square the idea of the decline from the fall of Christ with the personal conception of a rugged, gradual increase? I was having difficulty squaring those two. Yeah. So the question of the... So, if postmillennialism teaches that there's a increase of the knowledge of God filling the earth, how do we line that up with the claim that from the fall until Christ that there's a there's a sort of this decrease? It's a percentage decrease and not an objective decrease. So the idea would be that there's an increase of the objective revelation from the fall until Christ, and there are more knowers of God that are kind of coming across time. You're gonna have ups and downs. But it's going to be on a comparative level. There's going to be this, this appearance of, of the darkness overwhelming the light. The, the Gentiles will be darkness, and they have this little light. You know? and, and so the idea there. And then the light itself, um, in, you know, the, the church of the Old Covenant rejecting the light of the world, right, yeah. being sort of this maximal manifestation of that. So there's this decline um, in, in terms of what's happening there. It's all for the purpose of progress to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. Um, but it's sort of a difference of stages. One is sort of the, the gathering of the resources, and the other one is the constructing. And so the Old Covenant era is sort of this gathering of the material in preparation for the building of the temple that is the church. Okay. Mr. Spencer. So, thank you for your teaching. So, the Romans 11 verses? Yes. Um, Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I think that um, this perspective is covenantal as opposed to dispensational. And the American Evangelical Church in the last generation was dominated by dispensationalism, which made it so that there were two different covenants uh, that were separated from each other. So they would say, you know, the Jews have one covenant and we have a different one. So we, we are not sons of Abraham is sort of the 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 way that they're teaching things. Um, even though many of them rhetorically would reject that, it's functionally the belief that we don't have those covenants. So covenantalism asserts that there's a continuity of the covenant of grace. And so we have the same, we, we have the same covenant. We are, we're being brought into the olive tree, right? We are, we are um, I guess I, I'm a Gentile. I know you're not. So, so that idea that for I, I was put into the natural olive tree. You are a part of the natural olive tree, a branch that was you know, torn off is sort of the idea, right? So we have this, that, that's the language that Paul uses. And so um, that language of continuity, of being a part of the same olive tree, is talking about being a part of the same you know, church, and you have nations being covenanted in. And so 
national covenanting is also generally Americans hate it. And the reason we hate national covenanting is because we have this stupid idea of the neutrality of the state, as though we could know what laws to enforce apart from Christ. And, and so Americans have generally avoided national covenanting as opposed to the idea of covenanting and acknowledging the headship of Christ over every nation, including the United States of America. And so that, that idea of national covenanting the other thing is the optimism of all of the nations being brought in. That's post-millennialism, right? And so then also the idea that the casting off of Israel has already occurred is called partial preterism. So all of those views are minority views. And if you make the Venn diagram, it's itty-bitty in terms of the number of people who would put all those things together. But amongst post-millennials, you'll generally find a lot of those things combined. And so this understanding of the Jewish nation being returned in as a covenanted nation is common amongst them. And if you read the Puritans, you read Luther, you read Calvin, there's this understanding that there's a need to evangelize the Jews. So this is the historic position, and it is not something that's novel, but it is not widely taught now. Um, and so it is certainly important for us to engage. And we have a place, you know, Isaiah 53 is a very powerful thing. Take it to Jews talking about it. Who is this talking about? You know, it is a very powerful thing. You just say, hey, I'm going to read this thing from you. Tell me who it's talking about. You don't have to tell them it's from the book of Isaiah. Tell them afterwards it's from the book of Isaiah. And oftentimes people will just go, what? Right? So that's a really easy. There, there's the ambush. Just the L-shaped ambush you can easily use. So any, anything else? Great. Going once, going twice. Great, let's pray.